0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets, here on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. I'm joined by Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist Jeremy Siegel. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of any investments, and these are guests are their own, not those of Wisdom affiliates. And I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel, we're going to have a very interesting show on the banking sector with a real expert on what's going on in the banks, but it's been a big week for data, a lot of inflation data out, CPI, PPI. Let's get your take.
2: Yeah. uh, Both the PPI and CPI came in above expectations. Um, Some of the real data um, came in below expectations, particularly retail sales um, and housing starts. Um, and yet, the stock market is in a strong uh, uptrend. You would think that those combinations would uh, 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 make the market uh, go down. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons for this, um, and that is the very sensitive indicators are not showing a downturn. I mean, the uh, um, home builder sentiment index actually rose more than expected. That's more current than the housing Index. We also got a pretty good reading again on unemployment claims. It doesn't show any tanking of uh, the economy, and I believe that the market thinks that a lot of these increases are one-off increases due to um, seasonal adjustment problems in the month of January. Seasonal adjustment has become more of a problem uh, since uh, the COVID uh, epidemic. uh has has hit uh talking about the cpi particularly uh we've talked about how faulty the uh shelter is shelter was up six tenths of one percent we know year over year rental prices are down we know how lag that is it was that was a major source of miss uh on the upside of that cpi so when you looked at the actual details um I wasn't as uh, disturbed. I do know the super core was was still up, which excludes their rent, but that's a very narrow index. And there's a lot of one-time adjustments in January for those super core components that I think pushed it up. have not had time to really look into the PPI. Uh, I do want to point out, though, that intermediate goods – Uh, Further down, um, um, uh, earlier in the pipeline, our acts are down uh, this month and down year over year. Um, And I also want to say even more importantly, if you talk about a sensitive indicator, you look at the commodity price indexes, such as the Bloomberg Commodity Price Index, which hit a two-year low yesterday uh, and uh, has gone down 32% since March of 2022. So, um, uh, you know, the the sensitive Khmalli indices are not going up. However, let's look at the practicality here. Of course, um, no rate cut in March barring some very bad unforeseen event, which could always happen geopolitically or elsewhere. Um, how long it's delayed, again, it depends on the data. We've still got a lot of data, more than a month of data before the March 20th meeting, Um, more prices, more um, uh, labor market reports, particularly uh, price indexes that might reverse the January. We often get January going above expectations. If you look at the last several years, it's exceeded expectations most of the time. So I'm not willing to say, oh my God, inflation is coming back. Sensitive indicators are not saying that. Um, The sensitive indicators are also saying the economy is not slipping, although retail sales does indicate a consumer slowdown. Uh, The current GDP indicators have cooled from the low threes to the low twos, which is still a decent uh, uh, performance, certainly for GDP. Um, Earnings, the tail end of uh, fourth quarter earnings are still looking very good. We're going to get, of course, um, um, we're going we to get some of the the, uh, the retailers who delay a month on their fiscal year to see how um, uh, they'll be coming out soon. But uh, earnings are coming in fine, and there's a lot of optimism on earnings this year, which I shared and in, in voiced quite earlier. Uh, I still think we are in an uptrend. I think that despite uh you know this little old bump you could see the bounce back on the cpi um and i think um we're still headed higher uh here in the short run
1: well it, it, it's been fascinating to watch small caps this week we've talked about broader participation but it's really like the semiconductors leading this train higher as we've been talking about you've seen some explosive moves in some of those stocks um And you used to think of growth being good for small caps. And now it's like anything that's positive for the economy has been bad for small caps. Uh, It's an interesting
2: dynamic. Well, it it is an interesting dynamic. But I I still think uh, Russell 2000, I think, is still up about 30 percent from its October lows. It shows some good strength um, in in the economy. Recently, there has been some. Broadening of that, but uh, you know uh, the, the market's still in love with with the, the modified Mag Seven. Um, we also see money moving into Bitcoin. Um, uh, that's in a strong uptrend. I assume that that uptrend might continue. Um, uh, at least it seems to me to be. Uh, we're going to get some more trend followers. It's a very Very speculative asset where trend followers come in when they detect a trend. I usually expect that to be higher, whether it challenges the highs that will reach 70,000 plus, you know, um, in early pandemic years uh, is yet to be seen. But I think some of these speculative flows are in. And it seems like, you know, 5% money funds, people are not content just to sit uh, on those. And um, uh, there's still a lot of money on that sideline that still gets what we want to get in the stock. So the primary trend uh, is still upward.
1: Professor, I know you're traveling today and we're calling from the airport early right after the PPI release. So thanks for some quick comments to start the show and have a great weekend.
2: Yes, and we'll talk to you next week.
1: All right. I'm going to turn our conversation to our guest for the remainder of our program. We have Chris Whalen of Chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, publisher of the institutional risk analytics. Chris, welcome to Behind the Markets.
0: Hey, thank you, Jeremy.
1: Uh, we're going to get your view on all that's happening on the banks. You sort of do a lot of work, a lot of great work on what's happening um, in c- current events, but any reaction to the macro, the, the sort of commentary you heard from the professor to kick us off?
0: I think it's interesting the divergence of indicators. On the one hand, weak retail sales; on the other hand, a number of positive indicators. Uh, the credit world is still pretty calm when it comes to consumers, so that tracks with this narrative that you know the economy is apparently chugging along quite nicely, even though interest rates are what five hundred, six hundred basis points higher than they were two years ago. So. I can tell you from the perspective of dealers and people in the markets, uh, having to pay six and a half percent for financing for assets, especially if you're a lender, is quite oppressive because that means that they're well underwater on their production. And I think that's really the background of all of this is we're adjusting. Uh, There's still a lot of volatility in this data, and I think that will continue uh, for a while. So that's, it's tough as an analyst to really peer through all this. You know, imagine the people at the Fed who are trying to figure out what the appropriate level of reserves is. Well,
1: you know, we're going to push no you idea. on that question for a second at, at, at some point.
0: Well, it's like our star. I mean, what is it? Or liquidity, you know? so
1: Very tough questions to answer.
0: Let, I want to start. I, we're going to get into a lot of details
1: about what's going on in the banks. But maybe I could start with. The conclusion and sort of what is the the net take um you know we we talk you'll talk a lot about all all the work that you do, but we we had a a, a private conversation before I talk about do you want to be net long or net short the banks today is is do you have a view on where you want to be or should people be thinking about buying the banks here should they be thinking about selling the banks what's what's the bottom line uh,
0: I think you want to be net short uh two reasons commercial real estate number one and number two eventually the consumer's going. to lose uh, a beat or two, and we're going to see higher default rates. Uh, I was writing about the non-banks yesterday and how their defaults right now look fine, blissful. It's not an issue. But as soon as you start seeing delinquency rise, that goes right to expense because it takes 10 or 20 or 30 times the cost to deal with a troubled consumer as opposed to a consumer that's current. So that's a big toggle for banks and non-banks alike. Uh, I, I still have two positions right now, U.S. Bank and, of course, New York Community Bank that I'm now famous for. Uh, I bought New York Community because I know the Flagstar team, and Sandro D'Anello is now running the show. Uh, he was in buying stock the other day, and I'm going to sit with it, but I wouldn't encourage people to go bottom fishing right now because I think you can buy it cheaper. Most of my positions in financials are in preferreds. And that goes back to 2020 uh, for the same reasons, Jeremy. I didn't want to get my feet wet, so I moved up the capital structure. Uh, and, you know, there's been some ups and downs with the banks. But let's face it, we've had four down quarters in terms of earnings for the industry. Uh, that will probably continue next year or this year. And I think you'll see higher credit expenses. So that's kind of the, the summary for the banks. You know, there's a fundamental relationship in banking between pretext operating income and provisions for losses. So when one goes up, the other one goes down. That's how you look at it.
1: I was, I was going to had a feeling that's what you're going to say. I mean, it's interesting I, now and mentioned the preferreds. When you think about the position, the preferreds are in and why you'd hide out there. Is there uh, it's a, it's a yield play. It's higher in the capital structure. Um, are there other things that are making that, and is it a broad cross-section preferred? Is it select? you got to be very careful which ones you want to go to. How are you thinking about that?
0: Well, you should do your homework. You want to pick preferreds from banks that are in the top half of the group. If you think about pure Group 1, which is all the banks from $10 billion on up to J.P. Morgan, about 130-some-odd institutions. I'm working on an index, by the way, as you can probably tell. Um, and I would just encourage you to stick with the quality. You know, that's my approach to this whole market. There have always been overperformers in the group Discover, uh, American Express, Axios, uh, Synchrony. Most of those are consumer lenders, keep in mind. Uh, and then you have a lot of underperformers in the group, and they're going to get bought, especially over in the next couple of years. But you don't want to go picking up nickels in front of the steamroller in terms of uh, buying. You know, down on their luck stories. Obviously, I'm going to sit with my New York community. I may buy more, but I'm crazy, so don't don't take any guidance from me.
1: I'm going to get into that one in a second, but let I, one of your notes. What's the mortgage
0: re- play? Mortgage is boring right now. Uh, everybody's surviving on servicing income. Nobody's making money on lending. So, do you want to buy a lender now, like Western Alliance, New York Community, big big resi component, second largest warehouse lender in the country after J.P. Morgan, which will probably save them. Uh, but the Resi book in New York? Oh, I think they're going to rebrand the whole thing Flagstar, by the way. So.
1: <laughs> well, you, well, you mentioned in one of your notes was sort of tragedy of errors. When you think about how badly they mismanaged the communication and and the issues here, for people who may not follow every detail of this New York Community Bank story, what happened, in, in your view, sort of give a quick summary um, it, it is, and, and obviously, you're sticking with it. You mentioned sort of being long the bank and, and sticking with it. So what? where did the big surprise come for the market and, and, and everybody?
0: Well, first context, last year was not a great year for banks. And even though New York community was in the top 20, top 15 in terms of market returns, it was trading at half a buck. So my basis is pretty low. And, it, you know, it's lower now. I bought some more after the surprise. What they didn't do was have the right approach to disclosure, like a big guy, like a big bank. Uh, They still had the New York Community Bank mentality, which is lovely and sleepy. But, you know, if you're going to be a $120 billion institution, that means you're in a different category for regulators. That also means that you've got to be proactive in communicating with your shareholders, including institutional shareholders, that means you have to have your presentation deck ready for the conference call and not distribute it half an hour later. Uh, so there were a comedy of errors, like you said, Jimmy. I think they should have pre-announced higher capital and the two commercial loans that they were going to write off. That's the way a big bank does it, because those are significant issues for investors, speaking as a member of FINRA. So, you know, but they're going to get it. They made Sandro executive chairman. And I think the whole Flagstar team is going to slowly push the three organizations that are inside New York Community Bank right now into a cohesive team. And that's what they have to do. Otherwise, they get bought and they lose their jobs. So it's very simple.
1: Right. In in terms of the... This, you know, the, 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 it brought back memories. Well, everybody's been talking about the commercial real estate. So they, I guess, one of the, one of the things putting pressure was the write downs on this the, the commercial real estate. How big of an issue do you see it? Sort of right after it, you had a, a Japanese bank, Azora Bank, that also had this big loss and and then had a big big yes. drop as well is this going to be something we see throughout this full year is write downs on these commercial real estate. You start, you see a lot of headlines of 80% sales of these properties. Like what's the overall exposure? What do you see as
0: the real issues uh, over the coming years here? You can't generalize about commercial real estate. There are some properties that are doing very well uh, and getting the price they want per square foot from tenants. And there are others that are going begging, as you said, and the, the, the interest rate component here is interesting because the way it's manifest when you're looking at a commercial building is that the investors now have higher hurdle rates, higher cap rates for their investment. So if I go from a 4% cap rate to an 8 the building's valuation gets cut in half. And this is all also calculated against net operating income. So if I'm making concessions to tenants, it hurts the value of the building that's kind of where we are today. Each one of these stories is different. Each one has a different level of occupancy. Think New York real estate, uh, office buildings in the box between, say, 34th Street and fifty-nine. And I think that, you know, I just wrote a piece asking if we should resurrect the Reconstruction Finance Corporation from the 30s. Why? Because fixing this, redeveloping this property and helping these cities turn these properties back into income-producing assets for tax purposes, it's going to require a lot of finance. The industry will do it. That's not the issue. The question is, how do you get developers to come to the table when they're not sure what's going to happen to asset values in the next couple of years? It's a situation not that different from the 30s. In the 30s, we were in a free fall. All private debt was liquidated during the 1930s. We don't wanna do that again. We don't want a debt deflation. So what I think we have to think about is how can we help the cities do intelligent things with these assets? Because like you said, a lot of them are gonna get sold at deep discounts. So what happens? The bank usually has 50 cents on the dollar in the mortgage and the owner of the building's got the other half, right? Equity. They wipe the equity, the bank owns the property. Does the bank wanna own the property? No. So you're going to see a lot of forbearance. You're going to see a lot of extensions of existing debt. But if the owner of the building can't put up cash to keep the balance between equity and debt at about 50 percent, then the bank has to market as a troubled asset. Uh, If they have to do a modification or a compromise with the, the, the debtor, again, it becomes toxic waste. And the bank slowly will sell this stuff at a loss and get out. And then who will finance these assets? That's the real question, Jeremy. It's not the banks today. And remember, a lot of these buildings in the cities are still cash flowing. They're fully occupied, right? But the owner of the building can't sell it. And they certainly can't find another mortgage lender. (laughs) That's the problem. So these buildings are illiquid. And I think we have to work with the localities to stop doing stupid things like rent control, which is not helping. It's hurting. Uh, And we have to try and reorient the narrative, I think, about cities and maybe convince the politicians not to attack business, because let's go back to what you said about that Japanese bank that took the loss, right? Why is that happening? It's because a lot of capital left some markets that are not friendly, like New York, and they went to Texas. They went to Singapore. They went to wherever. And they built an enormous amount of commercial property uh, in the last 10 years. New York, you've seen it, right? So what do we do now with all these brand new properties that nobody wants? You know, it's like if you go downtown to the world, you know, the world, uh, the, the new tower, right? That whole area is very well utilized. There's a lot of residential there. They used to shopping, right? It works. You go to Hudson Yards, it's empty. There's no one there. There's no street traffic. So you have different, you know, pockets in different cities and you have to evaluate them differently we well, 're going to try and buy time, but I tell you the losses from these assets are going to continue well through this decade. It 'll be idiosyncratic chunks you 'll have some good quarters and then you 'll have banks that all of a sudden have a big loss it,
1: it, there was a very interesting piece uh, that you wrote outlining this thing on has there been any reaction from the politics like when you look at the political environment today. You know, you had the TARP programs during the financial crisis, you know, like Uh you need to be pushed to the brink of crisis before people will come together to do things. Is this going to be just one of these slow bloodletting things where drip by drip you get one little bank crisis after the next, but you need the whole systemic seem to be falling apart before you get your solution in place?
0: Well, you know the way this works, Jeremy, there'll be a catalyst, there'll be a surprise. And then all of a sudden people are going to focus. You know, in the 1930s, most of the reform legislation, the creation of the FDIC, uh, the empowerment of Jesse Jones to restructure the U.S. economy uh, occurred on voice votes. Nobody read the legislation. FDR sent it to them. They voted. Harry Steagle and Carter Glass were standing there with their arms folded. That was it. It was very quick. So, yes, the only way you get a democracy to do anything is when you put a gun to their head. Because otherwise, the celebrities in Washington will misbehave, as you know. They get nothing done. Uh, you can see the fight between the House and the Senate over, you know, help for Israel and the Ukraine and everything else. Uh, so that's not going to get better. And the only way you can shut them up and force them to focus is if you have a problem. Commercial real estate the beginning, but ob- obviously the budget deficit is right behind it. So we have some interesting things to work on.
1: You um, you gave an analogy, and I, I've got to read your book, The Ford Men. I mean, I haven't gone back to that, but you talked about what happened in Detroit. Uh, any any lessons from that banking crisis and and what set it off back in in the 1930s with Ford in and Detroit and, and how that all came together?
0: Well, it's a fascinating story. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is I'm a student of the Great Depression, and when I found out that Henry Ford had literally tried to take all of this cash out of the bank in detroit remember the detroit banks in the 1930s early 1930s were the biggest banks in the country henry was the largest cash depositor of any bank in the country and etzel ford god bless him was actually supporting another bank in detroit trying to prevent it from failing while his dad is doing all this crazy stuff Yeah, james cousins ford's original partner who by now was the senator from michigan And FDR and Hoover trying to talk Henry Ford off the ledge. And remember, he ran that whole company on cash. He paid for everything in (laughs) cash. So, you know, when he did this, uh, Governor Ballantyne, uh, you know, found out about it in Michigan and he declared the bank holiday. And that was in mid-February and that rippled across the country. So by the time FDR takes office, this is why we changed the Constitution, right? Every bank in the country was closed. And that's because of Henry Ford. Now, it would have happened anyway, but Henry made it go faster. Hmm. There's a wonderful biography of James Cousins. uh, It was Cleveland State University that I would recommend for your listeners who like this stuff.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go back and read some of this history. It's quite interesting. I mean, so when you think about the SVB dominoes that fell and people, the Silicon Valley Bank, people didn't have confidence. They tried to do this. They wanted to get access to their cash. Right now, oh. people have been putting more money in the bank deposits. You know, you hear stats like there's six trillion in money market funds, but I I see numbers. You can tell me. I mean, you're gonna be closer to the the data to see what the real numbers is. Is there like something like seventeen trillion still in bank deposits? And are they paying close to nothing on that seventeen trillion? Like, the, you know, in the money market fund, you're getting five percent today. With where Fed funds are, you're still getting five percent. To me, there's still this big question: Why do people still? keep all their money in 0% checking type accounts?
0: No, actually it's changed quite a lot. Um, Look at Bank of America, their cost of funds is 4% today, okay? Uh, The other banks are similar. And what's happened is, very interesting, the non-interest bearing accounts, which were primarily business accounts, have declined. You've also seen a decline in what you're talking about. Money market accounts, Things that, you know, like your checking account that doesn't have any interest at all. What's risen a lot are time deposits. And you've also seen banks issuing term debt. The regulators are telling them to do this. They want the banks to diversify away from consumers because, like you said, with Silicon Valley Bank, 40% of the deposits walked out the door in two days because of people with smartphones in their hands. Now, I also think that the combination of pressure from the short sellers, which have been going on for almost a year, with that bank also contributed to that. There's a fascinating speech that the acting comptroller gave talking about this, and he, he has all of these scary statistics in there about Silicon Valley. But, you know, the bottom line is if you put 40% of your assets in mortgage-backed securities and you leave them like that for a period of years while the interest rates are rising, people are going to figure it out. <laughs> You know, the Fed manipulated the markets so dramatically from 2019 on that it was almost impossible for banks to avoid serious mark-to-market losses. Because let's imagine you're Bank America and you have this huge portfolio of twos and 2.5% mortgages. You should have sold for 104 and put in the T-bills. But Bank America's never done that. They love keeping their customers' assets. That's the way they do business, Right. It's the biggest community bank in the country. So now Brian is underwater. He's got a serious problem, and it's, it's not going to cause the bank to fail, but the earnings will be diminished because of the duration mismatch they have. So all, a lot of banks have this same problem, and you say, well, why didn't you manage it better? They all fell asleep. You know, the Fed said inflation is transitory, and they listened. You should never listen to what these people say.
1: (laughs) Well, it's interesting. In one of your reports that I was reading uh, in in prep, you you talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and and Bank of America, Mm -hmm. you put as the the ugly there. But when you mentioned they won't fail, but they're going to work it out, like how long of a cycle does it take for them to work off this this dynamic you're
0: saying? Years. It's like another lost decade, uh, because a lot of banks that don't have the income to sell this stuff and reinvest the net proceeds in a higher yielding asset, they're going to just suffer long. And that's a much worse situation compared to those banks that have said, fine, I'm going to sell this stuff. Uh, And, you know, you do the math, right? You do the, the discounted cash flows and obviously reinvesting 90 cents at twice the yield is a better trade, right? People will figure that out. Um, so, you know, the leaders in the industry, like J.P. Morgan, have managed their duration very aggressively. Jamie's taken losses every quarter, selling stuff. But he had a shorter book than the others anyway. He always had a shorter book. You know, Wells and B.A. have very long books because they keep low lot of their production.
1: So that, that, those are part of your good versus uh, versus ugly trades there, is, yeah. is uh, B, B of A versus Wells and versus J.P. Morgan. Anybody... The- in the middle that you would, that you would put, who's, who's, if, if those are sort of your barbells on good versus that bad?
0: Well, U.S. Bank, who I, I own, um, they just bought Union Bank of California from Mitsubishi. And it's going to take them a while to digest that, millions of customers, hundreds of branches. Uh, but it's going to position them very nicely. The U.S. Bank guys are interesting. They always like keeping the bank around five to $600 billion on the balance sheet. They like that size and it's small relative to JP, but they make a lot of money. The the key thing with them is the off balance sheet business, the payments platform, the mortgage servicing, all the administration they do in uh, the world of commercial real estate, asset backed securities, yada, 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 right? So they're, you know, I think they're well placed. That's why I bought some of the shares relatively cheap, low book. Uh, And you're going to have a chance to buy all of the quality banks below book in the next year. They got to be patient. It's like when I buy preferreds. I wait till people are screaming about the world ending, right? And then you go shopping for preferreds. Why? Because regulators will force banks to suspend their common dividend first. They are loath to touch preferreds because once you do that, the banks lose access to the capital markets. So to me, if you want to have exposure to banks, stick with the preferreds for now and go shopping if you see something really cheap. Uh, But that's, you know, like I say, you're picking up nickels in front of the steamroller because financials have been one of the worst performing sectors during this whole period of Fed manipulation of the markets. And I hope going forward, you know, we have less volatility. I think everybody in the market would like less volatility.
1: Well, if the Fed were to be now the question is, like, what would cause the Fed to be cutting rates, which would be? Aggressively cutting rates would be a serious deterioration of the economy, and that's gonna be problems for the banks too. Now you could say, hey, maybe uh-huh. they realize inflation's coming down. There's a lot of people like Siegel who kicked off for show, who thinks inflation's lower and the real rate's higher, that they shouldn't uninvert the yield curve and he doesn't like the inverted yield curve, wants them to be uninverting it as quickly as possible. But uh-huh. What you know, is, is, is can the Fed bail these banks out if they cut rates enough to, to help them? Is is that the that the thing that would make them a better deal? Uh, not on commercial.
0: You see, commercial prices off the long end of the curve. They price off sevens to tenths in the bond market. They also have very idiosyncratic profiles from a credit perspective. So it's not like residential mortgages or anything consumer where you drop short-term rates and all of a sudden you have a relief. Uh, the interesting thing is I think the bond market is going to see the yield curve normalize back to where it was before the great financial crisis with the long end higher and the short end. Maybe it gets down into the fours. If you got Fed funds down to four and a half, that would take a lot of pressure off lenders and dealers. And I think they could live with it. They could make money at that level. It's hard to make money at five and a half right now. Because if I'm charging SOFR plus one, one and a half to people doing financing today for repo or warehouse loans for new loans, uh, they're not making any money on production. They're losing money on production, even though mortgage rates have fallen a point. I think we peaked at 8% for a whole week in October, and that just about put the system into a, you know, paralysis. Uh, But, you know, volumes today, even though rates have fallen a bit, have not picked up that much because two-thirds of this book is still below 4%. Are we going to get mortgage-backed securities down into the threes so you could offer that guy with a four a LeFi? No, I don't think so. I, I think the low, low rate period is over, and people need to focus on this. Uh, the floor may be four, because this economy is racing the long term. I mean, really, it, it, it's, it's not great. I think qualitatively, this economy is not nearly as as rosy as people would like to pretend, but the numbers are okay.
1: One of your notes talks about the banks are being net sellers of treasuries and mortgages, sort of, I guess, raising cash. Talk about the dynamic these banks are under and how they're shifting their balance sheet. What, what, What you see, is that why sort of more, when people talk about, we've had a show with Voya, uh, Dave Goodson of Voya, who is a portfolio manager for mortgage-backed securities. Says these yield spreads are some of the widest level they've ever been. Thinks is actually an opportunity. It's because these banks mm-hmm. are not holding them. What's the what's the dynamic for these banks that's causing them to be selling these these uh, mortgages and treasuries?
0: Well, first and foremost, they're sellers of older legacy paper from two thousand twenty twenty one, even two thousand nineteen, because the coupons are lower and they are opportunistically trying to trim some of that back and reinvest at much higher rates, sixes and sevens. So that's a slow process. They have been buying less than they're selling for the past several quarters. They've also been sellers of treasury paper of the same vintage, mostly short-term stuff, but also longer term, because as you said, they're raising cash. Why? Because banks are getting ready to do some credit losses, mostly on the commercial side initially, but within a couple of years, I think you're going to see consumer defaults catch up. So, you know, one of the reasons I've been focused on how do we finance the commercial mess and fix that quickly is that down the road, we will have to deal with a consumer recession. And it behooves us to be helpful to the banks because, you know, if the office building gets cut in half in terms of the valuation, the banks can't deal with that. It's too much of a loss. This whole asset class of offices and multifamily apartment buildings has been going up for three quarters of a century, really going back to World War II. Banks funded it. They loved it. Never had defaults. If you look at New York multifamily real estate, it rarely had a default. I rated most of the smaller banks in New York. These portfolios were pristine. And if somebody defaulted, they could sell it. It wasn't a problem. Uh, So now it's the opposite. Now you have soft valuations, you have hostile politics with rent control, and that is combining to soften a lot of the valuations for these properties. But meanwhile, they're still cash flowing. So you're a bank. You have a mortgage that's coming up in a couple of years. They're paying you. But the problem is, you know, the building is now worth 20% less because of rent control. The regulators are looking at you saying, well, you've got to get more cash it's got to be 50 cents on the dollar of equity so you ask the borrower can you put in more cash and they say no i'm broke because of COVID. nobody paid me rent for two years you know isn't it interesting that the politicians forgot about the landlords they just assume that they're rich that's the mentality we have in washington with the progressives so a lot of these businesses are already impaired they can't put more money into the building especially when they look at the long-term or even medium-term outlook and say I can't recover my cost. So that's the problem. Offices are just, you know, depends on where it is and what it is and, and, and whether it's utilized or not. It's it's chopped salad.
1: And so the consumers, like when you look at your, you do, you do cover some of the credit card companies, American Express, and you talk about yes. um, uh, that versus some of these other consumer companies. The delinquency is just not showing up there at all. Discover.
0: Well, no, they've had some delinquency. They always do. But the point is, these businesses are so efficient and they turn their assets so many times a year, much more than these other banks. That's why they're so valuable. American Express trades at five times book. That's three times J.P. Morgan's multiple. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Discover is always in that top group. Axos, uh, Synergy, these guys make money. They have big spreads on their assets. So... You know, that's, that's the reasoning there. Uh, there's always been a hyper efficient group of reasonably small banks in the US, which outperform the really big guys. And why is that? Because there's no economies of scale in banking. You either know your customers or you don't. That's it. Uh, and the big banks rely on the law of large numbers to get by. So when you have a recession, they get hurt. That's it. But remember, we haven't had credit as an issue in five plus years. So you know it's going to come back. It's just a question of the timing.
1: And, and if you had to put your crystal ball when that timing is, is it a 2024 event? Is it next year event?
0: I think it's probably going to take until 25 for the reasons that the economy looks so good. There's still a lot of liquidity flushing around from COVID and all of the legislation. that uh, you know, the giveaways by the Biden administration were monumental. Uh, modifications of loans—if people express, you know, any degree of suffering uh, in terms of their home mortgage—they get a modification just by asking. So, you know, we're throwing a lot of money away, uh, and I'm not sure how that's going to look. My worry is that the you're going to see volatility in things like credit defaults and the economy both because of, you know, the amount of money that's been thrown at this problem. Eventually, the money is spent. So then. You know, we get back down to what you would call the baseline for the economy, and obviously defaults should be higher, no question, especially after a period of credit expansion. But what's interesting is, you know, people hyperventilate about credit cards and auto loans. If you look at the numbers, the level of utilization is probably down if you adjust it for inflation. So we're using fewer credit cards, really. More mortgages, you know, larger mortgages, but fewer loans, right? So, you know, affluent Americans, obviously, are not affected, but the bottom third of the credit stack is already sitting in pain. So you could say that the bottom quarter of, say, FHA loans is already in crisis in terms of mm. default rates, mid-teens, okay? It's, it's, it's ugly. Is Do
1: you think what's one of the things keeping home prices... Is- up, you know, so like you haven't seen, you know, the, when you look at the broad national index, like the K Shiller index, um, you know, you could say it's, it, it, despite all these high mortgage rates, people are, have been robust and maybe it's, you know, it's a much smaller amount of transactions taking place. Like the people who have parents, you can help them buy a house or you, you the more affluent is what you're talking about. Um, Is it that people think rates are going to go back down and they're just banking on refinancing? Is there anything, that, what do you think about happening in, in the home market today?
0: every market's different. If you look at the national, it's still going up. If you look at San Francisco, the average prices are falling. So some markets that have been affected by whatever factors, right, are already starting to show weakness given where rates are. Um, But, you know, bottom line on home prices is supply. If you look at the bottom half of the distribution, the average loan's about $320,000, $330,000 today, Uh, there is really no net supply. Because when you subtract obsolescence from new home building, you're barely moving. Uh, Lori Goodman at Urban Institute does some wonderful work on this, if you know, your listeners are interested. But I, I think that overall, we still haven't seen nearly the level of home building that we've seen in the past cycles. For all sorts of reasons, zoning, you know, all the blue states basically make it impossible for people to build homes. So where you see home building is down south in the red states. Um, and I think if anything is overbuilt, go to Texas, go to Florida. Uh, they probably have more because the capital that used to be deployed in Illinois and New York all went down to Texas. And you also had a migration of industries. Uh, half the mortgage industry has moved down to uh, Texas between Houston and Dallas. Uh, and why? Because California was too expensive for those employees. They couldn't afford to keep them in Southern California. So. You know, there's a lot of factors influencing home prices, but I think the big overarching factor is just the lack of new home construction. And unfortunately, we cannot convert most commercial building to residential. Just keep repeating that to yourself.
1: Yeah, there's, always, work. there's always some of that story, but that's where you're, we need this reconstruction finance corporation comes back to save all that uh, help it reposition. It would be
0: nice if we could just gut the frame and build something new inside. You know, some people do that. Uh, you've seen that on several buildings on Park Avenue in New York, where they literally kept the frame and built a new building inside it. But in most cases, you've got to take it down. You know, the floor heights, everything is different in a residential building.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit, you mentioned, you teased out at the beginning of the show that you're working on a new index for for people who like what they hear from you. Maybe talk a little bit about the institutional risk analyst, the services that you provide and what you're doing there, and then how you're thinking about an index and what what you think that index might look like.
0: Well, for the past year or so, uh, you and a number of my other friends in the ETF space have said to me, Chris, why don't you do an ETF? So after a lot of discussions, I decided to start with the basics, which is we have to have an index that we might use. And I might just publish the index, but what I want to do is define the top 50 banks in the U.S., equity returns, market returns, that sort of thing, and let them vote for themselves. This is very much how we built our original model when I was running institutional risk analytics with my friend Dennis Santiago in uh, uh, Los Angeles. And that model, by the way, is still in use. The Corp Fin uh, Department at the SEC still uses the bank monitor to look for outliers. Uh, you push up the level of accusation in the model and you look for the ones that stick up, right? In this case, though, with the index, you'll have vote for themselves. These are liquid companies. They have published financials. And the nice thing about banks is they use the, the same accounting taxonomy for most of the key metrics. When you get outside of banks, That's when it becomes difficult to differentiate uh, because GAAP is very broad. You can have two companies in the same industry that have totally different financials, (laughs) you know, and where it's a case in point, mortgage. You know, when I looked at ETFs and financials, one of the things I noticed was that nobody excludes the bad names. They buy everything. All the passive strategies buy the dogs and they buy the market leaders. So I said, why don't we just buy the good ones? And if, you know, the ETF I was thinking about, we would include debt and preferred along with the common, but you'd also have to be able to go short. That's the interesting thing. There are times when you want to be short banks, even if you own the preferreds. Why not? Right.
1: (laughs) As you mentioned, you want to be net short as we started out the call
0: is one of the interesting things. I think right now, yes. Because even the virtuous, look, look at all the managers piling into JP Morgan. And I understand. But what are they buying? They're buying liquidity. They want to be able to get in and out of that stock really fast, or Citi, or any of the top 10. After the top 10, nobody pays much attention to them unless they're really focused on banks. And I thought to myself, there's 50 really good banks in this country that are publicly traded that we could actually help people focus on. And, you know, imagine uh, how you're going to feel if your bank's not on Chris's list, Jeremy. That's interesting.
1: The, um, you, you talk, one of the topics you wrote about a little bit, and you sort of, I think, just alluded to it in, in that comment, was, you know, there's, I don't know if you follow the Michael Green, and Michael Green's been popular for all the flows to passive and what it's driving stock prices, and yep. David Einhorn was just on Barry Ritholtz's podcast talking about how, well, he talked about is the market fundamentally broken because of the shift to passive and it's causing – people to do things and like your point on on the banks like the bad banks people are they not differentiating the bad banks because of the sort of passive Mm -hmm. is that impacting the long and short opportunities in in your view in some way
0: oh very much and and you see it dramatically with someone like new york community bank most passive strategies wouldn't have a bank that small in their on their list so what happens is the ones that are big enough to be included in a passive ETF strategy had this constant updraft. You know, when the, when the stock goes up, they buy more. So, you know, it's geared to a long position, whereas everybody who's not included in that universe are basically just targets for the hedge funds. And, you know, it, it makes them more volatile than they would be otherwise. If everybody was out picking stocks, they wouldn't be buying, you know, the Bank America's in the cities. I love Jane Frazier. I think she's doing great work trying to you know, restructure that bank. But I've been watching you restructuring a city for 50 years. so you know, It's a long time, not quite that long, but 40 years. And, you know, I go back to like the Mexico days with these guys, and I, I just don't know what to do with that business. I think they ought to sell the pieces. The payments platform at City is worth more than the market value of the company right now at books. You could get book value for the payments platform. Why don't you do that trade and then sell everything else? Maybe you get one and a half, one and three quarters times book for shareholders who've lost ninety eight cents on the dollar since two thousand eight. So, you know, come on, end the suffering.
1: And, and what's what's their reaction to that? Why do they? Why do they not do it?
0: Oh, they get pissed off at me because they know I understand. I know. I worked on City when I worked at the Fed of New York, Reg K. We used to have little index cards that we would pin to the wall for all the Reagan K investments around the world. And I'll tell you a funny story. I'm I'm getting ready to publish a biography of Stan Middleman, the founder of Freedom Mortgage, who's just wonderful. Rags to riches story. Mom and pop. He's one of the biggest government lenders in the country. He's got one of the biggest servicing books in the country. And he has taught me, you know, about the 90s when he first started. Guess who was there? Guess who had the first no doc mortgage in the United States? City. It was called Mortgage Power. And I remember this when I worked at the Fed, I was like, "Why are you losing so much money in Japan?" It was because of unsecured undocumented lending. That was uh, you know, the, the big inspiration of City in those days. They used finance company techniques to basically expand the market to people who couldn't get loans. You know, in the 1990s, remember, it was really hard to get a mortgage. Very, very, very hard. So when Citi decided to expand the window a little bit, all of a sudden, they got a huge amount of business. And that's why they still have that subprime book, which you can sell. It's a very valuable asset.
1: That's very... It's its interesting hot take on some of, the, one of, some of these big banks. If Is Warren still involved in Wells? Is is that his big bank that he's been long time... Mm.
0: Investor, no, I think he got out. I'm not sure he got back in or not. He may have, because remember he was the shareholder for a long time, and then they—I know that they sold at, at a certain point. I'm not sure if they're back in or not. I, I know, know he Wells. was. Moved... I think Wells is—you know—one of the most improved students in the class. Uh, they got a ways to go, but you know, see all, the the simple metric you look up for any bank if you want to start with a, a surrogate for management is efficiency. Go look up their efficiency ratio and their earnings or go on the uh, the Fed website, the National Information Center, and you can get the report on all the big bank holding companies and just look at efficiency. That tells you if the management team is focused or not. Now, Citi is trying to get their efficiency ratio down within 10, 15 points of Jamie Dimon. Jamie's in the 50s that means every incremental dollar revenue he generates half of it goes down to the bottom line okay if you want to compete with Jamie Dimon you've got to be in the 50s or the 60s uh us bank used to be right behind him uh, historically they've got to skinny down now 10 points to digest that acquisition before they'll be competitive and then the rest of them are in the 60s and the 70s
1: and so when so we're defining efficiency that, here it it's incremental margin every leverage.
0: Right. Operating leverage. It's your overhead costs. You know, it, you're know, you essentially looking at your cost of overhead is, is a simple way to think about it. Or if you drop your efficiency ratio, you have positive operating leverage. That's what they talk about on the earnings call. But if there was one metric I'd tell everybody to look at even before return on equity, that's what it is. Is it tells you if they're making money. When you look at Goldman or Morgan Stanley on this basis, they don't look good because they're not banks. They're broker-dealers. They have a different expense structure. But if you see TD or any of these other big also-rans, they're up in the 70s. Uh, you're not competitive if you're up in the 70s. You're giving money away. So.
1: Well, before you get into the ETF market, uh, is there anything for people who want to follow along uh, and want to say, hey, I like yeah. what Chris has to say about these banks. Here's how I could follow along on his work. Is there is there a subscription to institutional sure. risk? Analysts that people should be thinking about? How can people stay in touch with all your views and your work?
0: Well, sure. We, uh, yes, we publish the institutional risk analyst. We have a premium offering that uh, goes for $8.99 a year. We talk about names and industries. We cover three sectors, banks, mortgage, finance, and fintech. Uh, Each one is very different. Banks are 80 to 90% of the market cap of those three groups. The rest are very small. But interesting, there are a number of fintechs that have become banks. And unfortunately, when they do that, they become boring and nobody cares. PayPal, you know, PayPal has become entirely relevant. Uh, Square has become entirely relevant. There's no differentiation anymore. They, they look at it like Visa and MasterCard, which to me is OK. Those companies are going to grow. They need to get bigger. SoFi is another one. SoFi is now a bank. It looks like Capital One. By the way, most of their volumes are unsecured consumer, not student loans. So, you know, it, they're fascinating businesses. It's a coral reef. Well, Nobody likes mortgage. well, well, uh, what we're, are we're the mortgages. We're out of yeah, time. We're out of time, but this was, was
1: fun. Chris, right. it's been a lot of fun. We got Chris Whalen from Whalen Global Advisor, institutional risk analyst. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.